Okay, so we get ourselves today. This is our final week of our Genesis series, and we are getting into the story of Abraham this morning. This, this man, this figure that commands such attention in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in contemporary times, um, this important figure in Scripture. And like I said, it's, he's still, he's still a, a person, a figure that people talk about, think about today. Here's the, um, how's this thing working now? Yep. Here's the, uh, the other week I showed you the Noah musical. Well, this is Abraham's musical. You know, Noah, Abraham, Prince of Egypt, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm starting to think every biblical figure gets their own musical. Um, that may or may not be true. Look, I, I watched the YouTube trailer for this one. Um, the same reason you watch like car crashes on TV. I watched this one. Let's just say, Les Miserables, it ain't. Um, casting Russell Crowe might actually improve this one quite a bit. Look, I, I'm being a bit snarky, but honestly, like, how can you not? Look, Sarai, or Sarah, is blonde. <laughs> I, I put this up as sort of an example of a habit of casting figures like Abraham in our own image, right? Thinking of them the way we think of like 21st century white Western Christians, and maybe we put them in a robe and a headscarf. Um, but I hope that this series has shown us or made us aware of how often we read these texts like Genesis. We read these texts and without thinking, without doing it on purpose, we, we fill these texts in with our own cultural information, right? And that's something, you know, that's something we want to try and get out of as, as much as possible. Because, you know, Abraham is a man of the ancient Near East, right? He is not a Western individual. Come on, work for me. Help me. Uh, for whatever reason, this isn't clicking on. Do you just want to just want to click it through? There we go. Okay, cool. When you see me do the click, if it doesn't, <laughs> I'll make it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just make it that way. <laughs> so, a Abraham is a man of the ancient Near East. He's from a place the Scripture says Ur of the Chaldeans, and we don't know exactly where that is. Like, there's a lot of scholarly debate. What I can tell you is, it's not in Australia, and it's not somewhere in Middle America. Right? It is somewhere in modern-day Iraq. In fact, this morning I'm going to call him Avram or Avraham to emphasize the fact that he is not a Westerner, that he is, in fact, an ancient Near Easterner. He speaks and he acts and he relates to God in ways that are culturally appropriate for a man of his time. And, of course, we can't talk about all of the cultural elements behind the text we're looking at today because there's stacks of them. Um, I would recommend, I've brought my copy of um, the cultural, what's called the Cultural Studies Bible, um, which if you want to come and have a look at that, just come see me after. It's a great little, it's a great text, it's a great resource. Nobody just knows all this stuff, right? You, you read this stuff, you find it out, and that's, you need resources for that. That's a really great accessible resource, the Cultural Studies Bible. So we can't look at all of these cultural elements today, but we will look at some of them as we enter into Abraham's story in Genesis 12. When we get to Genesis 12, there's a different tone that is set. We move from sort of stories that are really more kind of in the fantastical 
area or sort of fantastical type stories to a more subdued narrative. In fact, we could say that, and it is said, that chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis are actually sort of the prologue. That's why they're there. They're the prologue. They're setting up events for the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham or Abraham and his family is what commands the rest of Genesis from here on in. And so we move to this more subdued narrative, what we'd probably be more inclined to call history. But I do want to stress that this is not history in the modern Western sense of the word. Right? This is history in the ancient Near Eastern style. It's what we'd call, um, I think Ben used this word last week, etiological or etiological history. And that means it's history written to explain the way things are now. It's explaining to the readers how we got to where we are now. So it's explaining to its readers the origins of the Israelite people, first and foremost. Because this is the history of a family. This is the history of Abraham and his early descendants. We go from Abraham to Isaac, his son, to Yaakov, his, grand, his grandson, to Joseph, his great-grandson, and so we're seeing this history of this family who would become the tribes of Israel. So it's the origins, it's explaining the origins of that people. It's also explaining the origins of the Israelite claim to the land of Canaan. And most importantly for us today, it's explaining the origins of the covenant. The covenant between God and Israel, which will pervade all of Scripture from this point forward. Now, just to kind of review, we've seen in previous weeks how God created an ordered world. He organized an ordered system in the world. But that ordered creation, that ordered world, was corrupted by human disorder. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis sort of show us how human disorder enters into this orderly world and corrupts it through human disobedience, through, through the tendency to violence, through human hubris, all of these things. And last week with the story of the Tower of Babel, we saw how God's presence has sort of been lost to the people in, in those early times. God's presence has been lost, but in the Tower of Babel incident, they are trying to sort of reestablish God's presence, but on their own terms. So we have all of this corruption. We have all of this disorder. But here's where the rest of the narrative goes. God has a renewal project in mind. He has a renewal project in mind. God plans to establish a people with whom he will be present on his terms. A people who will serve as priests in the world, priests who mediate between the world and God and direct the worship of the world toward God, a people through whom he will bring about restoration and renewal. And that project that God has in mind begins with the covenant. Now, a covenant, of course, we know sort of what a covenant is. It's an agreement, right, between two different parties. And this is actually what makes... Abraham's story unique in the ancient Near East because ancient Near Eastern deities do not make covenants with people. They don't do this. We don't have any evidence of any other God in the ancient Near East who made a or is said to have made a covenant with people. Yahweh does. 
He makes a covenant. And he sets the terms of the covenant. But very interestingly, when we come to the story of Abraham today, he doesn't actually lay out any of the details or the stipulations of that covenant from the word go. Instead, what he does, he makes Avram an offer. And it reads this way. Yahweh said to Avram, oh, by the way, you can follow along in your Bibles. I'm in Genesis 12. Um, you can follow along if you want to, but I've got most of the text up on the screen if you want to. That's up to you. It's pretty easy to find these days. It's nice to have iPhones and phones. Yahweh said to Avram, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. So God makes an offer to Avram. He offers him a family. He offers him the chance to father a family of people, a nation of people. Now, we value family very highly, right? Every culture does, really, value family very highly, and we do, we do likewise. We value family highly, but in Near Eastern tribal society, family isn't just valued. Family is all-encompassing. It, it basically comprises the whole of your life from birth to death. It's the whole of your identity. So your identity, your being is completely tied up in the family, in the clan. And in this society, family is not just a high priority. Family is your only priority. So the growth, the prosperity, the well-being of the clan, of the family unit is your only priority. And if you've experienced a tribal society in, in any way, um, you will be familiar with this idea. They, a lot of them work this way. Renee and I, so that's this. No, wait, sorry. I'll go forward. Maybe. There we go. So you might be wondering what this photo is in the bottom um, right-hand corner there. Well, Renee and I worked with a tribal society for um, a number of years, a tribal group in Asia called the Hmong. Uh, and they lived lives very, very, so they live lives, they still, they still live these lives, they're not gone. Um, they live lives very, very similar to the lifestyles we live, we read about here in Genesis. There's, there's rarely an idea of a person leaving home and making their own way in the world. That's just not how that society works. You don't actually leave your family unit. You, you live to benefit the family. So a son who comes of age doesn't leave. He builds his own house with his own family like a stone's throw from his parents' house. Like literally you could like walk there in 30 seconds. So entire villages of Hmong are made up of like two or three very, very large clan groups, very large family groups. Um, and this makes sense. I mean, in, in this type of society, this makes sense. The bigger your family, the more fields you can work, the more animals you can tend. So the more prosperity for the family, the more workers that you have. And that's similar to the ideas we find in Genesis with Avram. Uh, 
the, the bigger the family, the more prosperous the family. So they're always looking for ways to make the family prosperous and to grow the family, to have descendants, to have heirs that they can pass resources and they can pass property along to. But more than that, there's something more than that going on in the text as well. It's through your children. I want to try and explain this as best as I can. It's through your children it's through your descendants that you actually live on after death, uh, that your name lives on. Your name is remembered. It's kept alive through remembrance ceremonies that your, that your family undertakes on your behalf. That's how your name becomes great. That's how your name becomes honored. That's how your name becomes remembered. And I want to stress this. That's the conception of the afterlife that Avram would be working with. That's the way that they thought in the ancient Near East. That's how you remained alive, quote-unquote, after death. And with all this in mind, we can see the weight of what Yahweh is offering to Avram here. This offer of a great family, of, of a, a set of descendants who will become a great nation, is a very powerful offer. And it's even more powerful when we consider the fact that Sarai, his wife, is barren. Um, ben showed us that in, earlier in uh, Genesis chapter 11 last week. It says that Sarai, we get that information right off the bat. Sarai is barren. And to explain that a little bit, in Near Eastern thinking, um, the man, well, the woman is like a field. And the man sows the seed. <laughs> and so if nothing grows, then the woman must be barren. It's not a fertile field. That's, that's kind of how it, it worked or how they thought of it back then. Um, but considering what we've just discussed, that's disaster. That's a, that is a disastrous situation. For us, that's tough. Like when people, when we see people struggle with infertility, that's tough for us. For them, it's a whole lot tougher. It's, it's a disaster. You have no one to pass along your uh, resources to. You have no one to pass along property to. You have no one to pass along your name to. You have no one to keep your name alive and to honor it. And to honor it. So when we think about that, think about the weight that, ad that adds to the offer that Yahweh is making to Avram. Now, just like in most covenants, in most agreements, right, to get something, you have to give up something. And Avram is asked to give up something. He is called to leave things behind. He is called to leave behind the land, the clan, and the household. To leave behind the foundations, essentially the foundations of his life. Right? The center of his identity, the center of his prosperity, the center of his protection, and to strike out into the unknown. Now that's a huge deal. That's a, there's an immense decision here that lies for Avram. But there's actually another element to this that I think probably gets missed um, if we don't understand sort of the cultural realities underneath the text. There's another element going on. Yahweh is severing Avram's ties to other gods. He is severing, Yahweh, he is severing Avram's ties to other gods. And I want to stress this. God did not choose Avram because he was a monotheist. Avram was not a monotheist. There was no such thing as a monotheist back then. Avram, again, is a man of his time. He's a man of his culture. Avram would have grown up, would have been raised, worshipping many gods or other gods. 
the land, the family, the household. These were the three main ways that people in the ancient Near East related to deity. These were the three main ways they did. So leaving his land would mean that he severs ties with the city or the regional national gods that have sort of responsibility or watch over the nations. Leaving his family severs the ties with the clan gods that would have been inherited by descent who look after sort of the prosperity of the larger family clan group. And leaving his father's household would be severing the ties with those deified family ancestors that would have sort of formed the basic center of the day-to-day -day worship ceremonies that would have gone on. Those family ancestors that have been deified, that are sort of responsible for blessing the family and protecting the family. So leaving his land, his family, and his father's household would have severed his ties with all those three levels of deity because Yahweh is now going to fill all of those roles for Avram. It's important to understand, though, that Yahweh does not present Avram with a manifesto on monotheism. Right? He doesn't push him to assent to a list of articles of faith. Right? He doesn't do that. He simply invites Avram to accept his offer. And Avram, through the story, gradually comes to understand that Yahweh is the only God that he will ever need. Now, we said Yahweh doesn't make this offer of covenant because Avram is a monotheist. He's not. Yahweh doesn't make this offer because Avram is a particularly righteous person. In fact, there's a lot of evidence in the story that he's actually not. Throughout the story, Avram repeatedly, and I mean repeatedly, jeopardizes the covenant. Repeatedly. And this is how the story of Avram works. It's in a sort of a pattern, uh, chapter by chapter. Avram jeopardizes the covenant. Yahweh has to restate the covenant. And each time Yahweh restates the covenant, he provides a little bit more information and a few more stipulations and a, and a, bit, more, a bit more knowledge and understanding to Avram. So you get this pattern throughout the story of Avram. And I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. Obviously, we don't have time to read the entire story of Avram or Avraham this morning. I'd encourage you to read it. Avram or Abraham jeopardizes the covenant. Yahweh restates the covenant. Abraham jeopardizes it again. Yahweh restates it again, each time revealing a little bit more detail. Now, here's a few of those instances. We'll just kind of run through them really fast. First of all, when they get to Canaan, there's not enough room for both Avram's flocks and uh, his nephew Lot's flocks. He's brought his nephew with him. There's not enough room for both of their flocks. So Avram offers Lot the choice of land in which to settle. Now, that seems very generous of him, right? To us, we think, whoa, isn't that generous? Isn't that nice? And we often read the story as, oh, greedy old Lot takes the, takes the, best, you know, takes the best possible land. The truth is, though, for an Israelite reader, they would probably think Avram there puts the covenant in jeopardy because he actually gives Lot the choice. There's a good chance that Lot might choose the land of Canaan that Yahweh has actually promised to Avram. So there's a jeopardizing of the land that Yahweh has promised to give him. Lot, uh, as fortune would have it, Lot does not choose that. He chooses the red circle land there below the Dead Sea and he leaves Avram with uh, the area around Hebron there in Canaan. So crisis averted, 
But God then needs to come in and reiterate the fact that, hey, I've given you the gift of this land. Here it is. And he presents it. Now, later on, twice, 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 it's astounding. But Avram pretends that Sarai is his sister, basically to save his own skin, right? So that the men uh, of the areas where he's settling won't come. Apparently, she was quite attractive. So that he, they wouldn't come in and take her and kill him to get her. Uh, so he gets her to pretend that she's his sister. And indeed, when he does that, of course, she is taken in by local rulers uh, and to, into their harems. And there's a great risk in this that any child born to Sarai will not be Abraham's or not be Avram's child. So that's jeopardizing the covenant. And Yahweh then needs to remind Avram that he's promised that he would father his own offspring. And Avram believes Yahweh's word, and it is counted as righteousness. Now he believes Yahweh, but immediately after this, he takes matters into his own hands. And so he decides he's going to father a son through the slave that belongs to his wife, uh, Hagar is her name. We're probably familiar with that story. So he takes this idea, well, they're going to be my own children. Well, I'll make that happen. And so he tries to do that. Well, Yahweh then needs to, uh, needs to reaffirm that it is Sarai that will be the mother of Avram's son. And it's at this point that he changes, or Yahweh changes the name. Oh, click over. Yeah, we'll give it a click. There we go. There we go. We're getting there. Um, it's at this point when Yahweh reaffirms that ah, it's Sarai that will be the mother of your child that he changes Avram's name to Avraham. Avram means exalted father. Avraham means father of a multitude. And he changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And it's really important in ancient Near Eastern thought the idea of naming and naming someone, naming them according to their destiny is a big, is a big deal in uh, ancient Near Eastern thought and ancient Israelite thought as well. And now it's really interesting, I should say, in these covenant passages. Well, this thing isn't working at all, is it? <laughs> I'll just make that big clicky, that big clicky motion. Um, it's really interesting, I think, in these covenant passages that Abraham is asking, and I, I want to stress this, I, I want people to kind of grasp what's happening here. Abraham is asking oracle questions. If you read the passages where Avram talks to Yahweh, he's actually asking, he's posing these questions as oracle questions. And well, how does that work? An oracle question is basically posed, you word a question in a certain way, and then you interpret some sort of sign to divine the answer. And the, sign is, the signs can get really weird. I mean, sometimes it's like casting lots. Um, sometimes it's like looking at sheep innards and seeing how they, I don't even know how that works, how they did that, but that's how they did it. That's what they did. They, they did this sort of divination thing where they would ask oracle questions and then, and then interpret a sign to get the answer. I know that idea might trouble us a little bit, but again, we should not think of Abraham as a modern Western Christian having his morning quiet time 
uh, with, with a cup of coffee and his iPhone where he dials up the Bible Hub verse of the day, he related to God in the way that a man of his culture and his time would relate to God, would relate to deity. And importantly, God accommodates that. God accommodates that. God accommodates him. God remains patient through all of Abraham's missteps. And eventually, eventually, Abraham comes to trust Yahweh without question. And whatever we make of the story of the binding or the near sacrifice of Isaac or Isaac, whatever we make of that story, I know that story is very, very difficult. Um, but whatever we make of it, one thing we should notice is that when, in the midst of that story, that Abraham asks no questions of Yahweh at all. He asks no questions of God. He simply goes and carries out what he thinks he's supposed to do. It's clear that in this case, Abraham, he's come to the point in his life where he believes, he believes that Yahweh will be faithful to his promises about Isaac and that he will be faithful to the covenant. And so Abraham doesn't start out this way, but as we read the text, we see the progress that Abraham makes in his journey with God, where he gets to, his place of complete trust, his place of complete faith and belief in the words of Yahweh. Because God is indeed, throughout Scripture, faithful to the covenant. He extends and reaffirms it with Abraham's son, Isaac, with his grandson, Jacob, and onward to the people of Israel. God reaffirms and reestablishes his covenant. And it's interesting that as we read the rest of the Old Testament, that a similar story, sort of a similar story to Abraham's, plays out repeatedly with Israel in Scripture. Right? Israel is supposed to be the answer to disorder. Abraham and his people, his descendants, are supposed to be the answer. The, the covenant with Israel was meant to address the problem of human disorder, of human sin, of, of human violence. Israel was supposed to be God's representative in the world, was supposed to be the people with whom God's presence would dwell. But again and again and again, just like Abraham, Israel becomes part of the problem. Israel jeopardizes the covenant repeatedly or forsakes the covenant repeatedly so that Israel itself actually needs to be restored and redeemed. And that, of course, I mean, looking back from our perspective now, we recognize that that, of course, brings us to Jesus himself. Right? Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, who is the true embodiment of Israel, who in his own words came to fulfill the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant, and who bore in his own body on the cross the transgressions of that covenant and bore them so well that he bore them through death and into new life. And so he institutes a new covenant in his own words, a new covenant in his blood. And I think we all recognize the New Testament writers 
spend a lot of energy, a lot of energy on this idea, this idea of the new covenant. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. And I love the way the writer of Hebrews says it. This is the way. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One more. Yeah, back. Uh, this is the way he's, sorry, this is why, not this is the way. This is why he's the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance on the basis of his death. His death occurred to set them free from the offenses committed under the first covenant. And it's important to know as we read passages like this, and this is just one example of many, many, many passages in the New Testament that address the the covenant and its nature and the new covenant under Jesus Christ. The early church saw themselves as the true Israel. They saw themselves as the true Israel. A continuation, in a way, a continuation of Israel, but at the same time, something new. They've got this interesting balance between their continuation of Israel, but they're also this new thing that God is doing, the true Israel. And one of the most interesting aspects of this new, true Israel is that it includes Gentiles. It includes people who are not descended by blood from Abraham. And Paul, yeah, one more. Yeah, (laughs) there we go. And Paul talks about this a lot in many of his letters. Romans is, of course, Ben talked about doing a series on Romans. I think that's a good idea because Romans is, yeah, there's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. This is what Paul says about this. He uses Abraham's story to develop the idea of the new covenant. He uses Abraham's story to explain what the church is, to explain the mixing of Jews and Gentiles in the same body. And Paul says this, it's not as though God's word had failed. God's word to Abraham. Not all who are descended from Israel are part of Israel. Not all of Abraham's children are called Abraham's descendants. But instead, your descendants will be named through Isaac. That means it isn't the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children from the promise who are counted as descendants. And Paul is making the point here, how can Gentiles be included in this new body? Because it is the children who believe God's word, who believe, who what should I say, who are children of Abraham through faith and belief that are the ones who are part of God's family, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles in this thing that we call the church, the body of Christ. So in conclusion, we can say it's in the church. It's in the church. In a way, it's here in this room that the story of Abraham comes full circle that the promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed finds its fulfillment right here in this place where people from every family in the world, from every nation, from every tribe, from every people group become the children of Abraham through faith. So that's that's it. That's the end. That's sort of the end of where we're going with Genesis. Look, I'd encourage you, I certainly encourage you to read the rest of the book. We have to stop somewhere. Um, there's a lot that goes on, but the rest of the story, the rest of the narrative takes place 
in Genesis is really all about Abraham's immediate descendants and sort of, again, explaining kind of how we got where we are and it leads right into Exodus and, and beyond. So I'd encourage you to continue to read on. I hope that some of these sort of things that we've talked about in these past few weeks have helped you to understand a little better um, and definitely come and talk to us about some resources that are out there for understanding it. Just to finish, I've got some questions here and maybe we can sort of group up and just kind of have a little debrief as to where we've, where we've gotten ourselves to. Um, just in small little groups, if you want to have a chat, you don't have to use these questions, but just, you know, if you want to reflect, um, thought these might be good ones. What can the story of Abraham teach us about God's nature or about his character? What do we learn about God from this story, do you think? Uh, and just about the series as a whole, has this series on Genesis helped you to read the book in a new way? And if so, how is that? Uh, and what questions do you still have about the book? And I'm anticipating there probably still be many, <laughs> but, um, but that's fair. I mean, there's, it's a big book and there's lots of questions. Um, so that might be good, good things to think about. If your conversation goes in a different direction, that's cool as well.